Genesis 2.25, and then chapter 3, verses 6 through 24. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Chrissy just read to us, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for your honesty with us, about us. Thank you for our hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, we long to know you, not just know about you, but know you. 
And we pray this morning that you would speak to us. Would you give us ears to hear you speak? Lord, would you give us ears to hear you sing over us? Would you warm our cold hearts? Would you uproot the idols of our hearts? Would you cultivate us, cultivate in us the fruit of your spirit? Would you make us more and more what you create into more and more of what you created us and redeemed us to be? The very image of God. We love you. We long to hear you this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and along with Aaron Sands, I serve as one of the elders here uh, at City Church. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Um, we are grateful that you would take time out of your week to be here. Uh, I want to begin this morning uh, with a question, actually with a series of questions. Why is there so much pain and sorrow in our world? Why are there hurricanes like Dorian that leave trails of death and destruction in their wake? Why is there cancer and AIDS and ALS? Why do people fly planes into buildings? Why is there so much homelessness? Why do 825 million people go to bed at night hungry? Why do so many marriages end in divorce? Why do fathers not speak to sons and sons not speak to fathers? Why is there so much crime, so much robbery, rape, abuse, murder? Why do you feel lonely and misunderstood, even if you're married, especially if you're married? Why do we all live with the knowledge that the day is coming when we will die. You see, it really doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe. All of us live with a sense that life is not the way it's supposed to be. Some of the world's greatest thinkers have suggested that our problem is, is wrapped up in, in ignorance. And so what they've proposed is that we need education some people have proposed that our problem is oppression and what we need is liberation. We need justice. Still others have proposed that our problem, or they, 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 they've described our problem as we are being confined and conformed to the ideas and the morals and the expectations of others. And what they say is the solution to our problem is unfettered freedom and autonomous choice. But let me ask you a question. How, how are those solutions working? In Genesis 3, God gives us his diagnosis of our problem. Now, some of you hear that and you think, Genesis 3, isn't that the, that, that's a passage that Christy just read, passage about the serpent and the fruit. 
Before you dismiss Genesis 3 as, as just a fairy tale or a fable, let me ask you a question. What's your explanation, better explanation for why the world is the way it is? And how do you know you're right? You see, Genesis 3 is part of our foundation story. It is, it is the world according to God. It is the true story of the whole world. And the whole Bible is an outworking of and a response to what we read in this passage. If you took Genesis 3 out of the Bible, the rest of the Bible wouldn't make sense. And it's only as we begin to understand Genesis 3 that we will also begin to understand the mission of God and the mission of Israel and the mission of Jesus and the message of Jesus, the gospel, and our mission in the world. You can't understand any of these things without first understanding Genesis 3. And you can't understand why there's so much pain and sorrow in the world without understanding Genesis 3. So what does Genesis 3 tell us? Well, it tells us whether we want to admit it or not that we've got a problem. And that problem is sin. Now, for many people, sin as a moral category is, is passe, it's primitive. It's, it's the way less educated, less sophisticated people used to think. But we are so much more enlightened According to sociologist James Davidson Hunter, the word sin today finds its home mostly on dessert menus, peanut butter binge, and death by chocolate. The new measure of sin is caloric, it is not moral. But writing sin out of our culture's vocabulary hasn't worked. In one of the best known and most widely reproduced editorials on morality of the 1990s, an editorial entitled The Joy of What? The Wall Street Journal recounted a number of public scandals, a number of public sex scandals, Anita Hill's abuse charge against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, Magic Johnson's confession that his AIDS infection was a byproduct of promiscuous sexual activity. William Kennedy Smith's grimy testimony in a Palm Beach rape trial. The journal said, the United States has a drug problem. It has a high school sex problem. It has a welfare problem. It has an AIDS problem and it has a rape problem. What was the journal's suggested remedy? Let me quote. None of this will go away until more people in positions of responsibility are willing to come forward and explain, in frankly moral terms, that some of the things that people do nowadays are just wrong. Folks, you know that the Wall Street Journal is not a Christian publication. And yet, remarkably, the journal suggests that we should get the word sin out and begin to use it again. This past Wednesday, we remembered for the 18th time the tragedy of 9-11. I watched the news that night and Lester Holt interviewed a retired NYPD detective 
who spent days and weeks and months combing through the debris at ground zero, identifying and cataloging, cataloging the remains of the victims. Two years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. And that cancer has now spread to almost his entire body. Beloved, sin is cancer of the soul. It is devastating. It has cosmic consequences and it leads to death. We're gonna spend some time this morning thinking about the consequences of sin, but before we go there, we need to define sin. We talked a little bit about this last week, but just as a, uh, a reminder, what is sin? Sin is this, it is saying, I want to sit on the throne of my life. I want to decide for myself what is right and wrong. I want to decide for myself what is good and bad. Sin is elevating yourself to the place where you stand over and you stand in judgment of the word of God. Sin happens when God's word goes from being our ultimate authority to nothing more than good advice. One sign that you've put yourself in, on the throne of your life is that you insist that God explain himself and his commands to you. That you insist that God's commands make sense to you. That you insist that if God can't or won't give you a good reason for what he commands, then you can just disregard what he says. I don't like what the Bible says about sex and marriage. I don't like what the Bible says about men and women, about husbands and wives. I don't like what the Bible says about heaven and hell. I don't like what the Bible says about sacrifice and generosity. I don't like what the Bible has to say about me actually loving my annoying neighbor or my annoying coworker. I don't like what the Bible says about me honoring and praying for our politicians. I don't like what the Bible says to me about you fill in the blank. What's it for you? We've all got it. Beloved, what God wants from you and what God wants from me is that we would obey him for simply, for, we, we would obey him for no other reason that he is, than that he is God and that we are not. But you say sometimes what God says just doesn't make sense. In fact, to be honest with you, sometimes what God says seems totally unfair. And I would say to you, if God is who he has revealed himself to be in the Bible, all present, everywhere present, all powerful, all knowing, our creator and redeemer, and if we are who the Bible des describes us to be, who even before the fall, we were, we were limited, we were, we were finite, doesn't it make sense that sometimes what God says wouldn't make sense to us. That, 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 that sometimes we wouldn't quite understand. 
Beloved, God wants us to obey him even when and especially when we don't like or necessarily understand why he commands what he commands. Because he is God and we are not. The heart of sin is saying God and his ways have to make sense to me or else I'm not gonna obey them. That's the heart of sin. It was the heart of Adam and Eve's sin and it's the heart of our sin. And what we oftentimes don't realize until it's way too late is that sin has devastating consequences. First, sin alienates us from ourselves. What do Adam and Eve do the moment their eyes are open? Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. Why? The instant their eyes were opened, do Adam and Eve start sewing fig leaves together? Chapter 225, it reads, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. You turn the page, Genesis 3, they eat the fruit. Their eyes are opened. They realize that they're naked and they try to cover themselves up. What does that tell you? It tells you that shame has crept in. What is shame? We often talk about guilt and shame as if they are the same thing. So much so that you might think that guilt and shame are synonyms, but they're not. In his book, Shame Interrupted, one of my professors, Ed Welch, writes, shame and guilt are close companions, but they are not identical. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge. It says, you are responsible for wrongdoing and legally answerable. You were wrong, you have sinned. The guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. But shame lives in the community. Though the community can sometimes feel like a courtroom. It says, you don't belong. You are unacceptable, you are unclean, you are a disgrace. The shame person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. Do you see the difference? Guilt is the result of something you've done or you haven't done. Shame is the result of who you are. Someone who steals something or tells a lie or cheats on an exam or gossips about somebody behind their back or explodes in anger at someone. If that person has a healthy conscience, that person will feel a sense of guilt. They will say, I did something I shouldn't have done. Whereas someone who was sexually abused as a child or someone who was neglected by their parents or someone whose spouse cheats on them oftentimes carries around a deep sense of shame. Something is wrong with me. Here's the thing. Looking at our shame is like looking into the sun. It is almost impossible to do. So what do we do so that we don't have to look at our shame? Well, what do Adam and Eve do? They sew fig leaves together and try to cover themselves up. Here's what you need to see. There's something about us that compels us to cover our shame. Some people try to cover themselves up 
through success at work. Some people try to cover themselves up by seeking the love and approval of someone else. Others try to cover themselves up by trying to make themselves physically attractive. Still others try to cover themselves up by accumulating things or having experiences. You name it, we try to use it to cover up our shame. And yet our leaves always eventually fall off. And when they do, what do we do? We start sowing again. Beloved, this is not only Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. This is your story. We do the exact same thing. The question that you and I need to be asking ourselves is not, do I try to cover my shame? But how do I try to cover my shame? Do I know what my leaves are? Do I know that I'm trying to cover my shame? To cover, yeah, to cover, to cover my shame. Sin alienates us from ourselves. Second, sin alienates us from each other. You can rest assured that if Adam didn't want to see his own sin and shame, he sure didn't want Eve to see his sin and shame. And if Eve didn't want Adam to see her sin and shame, I mean, if Eve didn't want to see her own sin and shame, she sure didn't want Adam to see her sin and shame. What that tells us is that sin and shame not only alienates us from ourselves, but it also alienates us from one another. And that's exactly what you see in our passage. What happens when God asks Adam, what's happened? Immediately, Adam blames Eve. But if you look very carefully at verse 12, what you realize is that Adam doesn't just blame Eve. He also blames God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What happens when God asks Eve what happened? She immediately blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. God created Adam and Eve in his image to image him. Eve was created to complete and compliment Adam, to come alongside Adam and to partner with Adam. But now they're pointing their fingers at one another and they're pointing their fingers at God and they're pointing their fingers at the serpent. And that tells us something. It tells us something about you and me. It tells us that by nature, we always try to blame anyone and anything rather than owning up to our sin and shame. We always want to blame somebody else. It's always somebody else's fault. If you've ever spent time with a young child, you know this is true, don't you? And the result is rivalry, strife, tension, suspicion, hostility, indifference, and distrust. In verse 16, God says, to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, meaning that each of them will try to control one another. And in the same way that Adam and Eve questioned the goodness of God and whether or not he had their best interest at heart, now Adam and Eve question one another, questioning whether the other has his or her best interest at heart. And we do the same thing. Would you want 
everyone else in this room to know about you what you know about yourself. The things you think about. The things you lust after. Your fantasies. Your, your insecurities. Your guilty pleasures. Of course not. Why not? Shame. And so we're caught in this cruel, self-imposed irony. We desperately long to be known and accepted. And at the same time, we, we fear that if we are actually known, we will be rejected. So instead of owning our sin, we sow fig leaves together. We blame shift by pointing our fingers at someone else or something else and saying, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault. We blame our parents if, I, if, if they had just loved me better. We blame our genetics, I was born this way. We blame our circumstance, I was just doing my job. Beloved, the question you need to ask yourself is what do I tend to do when I'm confronted with my sin and shame? Who or what do I tend to blame? Here's the thing, this suspicion, this strife is not just something that husbands and wives experience. All of our social problems, loneliness, interpersonal conflicts, marital and family problems, poverty, class struggle, racism, genocide, social injustice, it is all a consequence of sin. Sin alienates us from ourselves and sin alienates us from one another. Third, sin alienates us from nature. Now, what do I mean? In, in Psalm 19, King David tells us that the heavens and the earth declare the glory of the Lord. But creation also declares the tragedy of fallenness and of chaos and of sin. Just think about the devastation left behind in the wake of Hurricane Dorian. Think about the Bahamas. Creation speaks out of both sides of its mouth. It sings the glory of God and it groans for release from its bondage to decay. Adam and Eve were originally placed in the garden to multiply, to fill it, to cultivate it, and to unearth the almost infinite potentialities of creation. But according to verse 16, childbirth is now riddled with pain. And in verse 17, providing for oneself is now riddled with pain. In his book, Ministries of Mercy, Tim Keller comments on our alienation from nature. He writes, nature is no longer under us as before the fall. Only with the greatest effort does humanity learn to get along with the physical world. And even though we eke out an existence, the earth itself will eventually win. For out of it you were taken, and to dust you shall return. Nature wins. Have you, have you ever wondered why dogs bark at you? Have you ever wondered why when you walk up to a tree and a bird is sitting in the limb, it might screech at you and then fly away? 
the 18th century pastor George Whitfield was once asked this question. You want to, you want to hear his answer? It's because they know that you have a quarrel with their master. Nature was meant to be our playground. But because of sin, it has become our graveyard. We will fight the dirt all of our lives, and in the end, we will end up turning into dirt. Genesis 3 paints a dark, dark picture. It teaches us that sin alienates us from ourselves, sin alienates us from others, and sin alienates us from nature. Finally, it teaches us that sin alienates us from God. Adam and Eve eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened. They start sowing. And then they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden. And what do they do? Verse eight, the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? Because they are afraid. They don't want God to see them. And we are no different. We try to hide from God. What are the trees that we tried to hide behind? Oftentimes, our trees are our religious efforts, our religious exercises. We hide behind our Bible reading. We hide behind prayer. We hide behind our giving. We hide behind our church attendance. We hide behind our mercy ministry. We behind our work for justice. All of these things are good. They are things that we are called to, but we use them to try to commend ourselves to God, to, to hide ourselves from God. You see, there's something about us that makes us think that God will only accept us if we make ourselves look good, if we pretty ourselves up, if we just do the right thing. But here's, here's the thing. That kind of thinking, it actually despises the blood of Christ. How so? It says to God, I know Jesus died for my sins, but what he did was not enough. I, I, I must supplement it. I must do something to add to the work of Christ. And what we are doing when we do this is we are, we are, digging our, we are trying to dig ourselves out of a pit that we are standing in. Now, let me ask you a question. What are the trees that you use to try to hide behind? How do you try to hide from God? Beloved, hiding never works. In verse 24, despite their efforts to cover themselves and to hide, God drives them out of the garden and places a cherubim with a flashing sword in front of the garden to keep them out of the garden and away from the tree of life. Believe it or not, that was God's grace. He was protecting them from themselves. And yet, at the same time, it was absolutely devastating 
Adam and Eve were created to know God and to be known by God. Adam and Eve were created to know one another and to be known by one another. They were created to cultivate and enjoy God's good creation. But their sin has made all of this impossible. I mentioned earlier the NYPD detective who after 9-11 worked ground zero and now has been diagnosed with cancer. When Lester Holt asked him, what are the doctors telling you? The man replied, I am not curable. I'm living on borrowed time. It's tempting to think about sin the same way. And the fact is that Genesis 3 does tell us in no uncertain terms that sin is absolutely deadly. But Genesis 3 also tells us that there's hope for sinners. Genesis 3 tells us that something can be done for this malady. Genesis 3 tells us that something has been done for us. What, where is there hope in Genesis 3 for sinners? Well, first, there is the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. As God is cursing the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, even between your offspring and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Beloved, this is the first announcement of the gospel. It is the first announcement of the mission of God. God says what? He says, I will put enmity between you and the, between the woman and you. And what that means is that our hope isn't in ourselves. We don't have to try to cover ourselves up. We don't have to hide. We don't, we don't have to try to clean ourselves. We don't have to try to earn God's love. We don't have to try to fix ourselves. God in Jesus Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Second, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, what does that mean? Enmity comes from the Anglo-French word for enemy. It is defined as a state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Now, here's the thing. The snake already hates God, right? And because human beings are created in the image of God, the snake already hates human beings. So this enmity that God is declaring isn't something that, that he's, he's, he's creating in the serpent. He's, he's actually talking to Adam and Eve. He is talking about their offspring. He's talking about people who, who look to him in faith. He's talking about us. And what God is saying is that I'm going to put a hatred, the hatred of Satan and of sin and his ways in you and in the hearts and the lives of your offspring. What God is promising us is a new heart. We will love what he loves and we will hate what he hates. It's what the prophet Ezekiel declared. I will give you a new heart and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What that means is there's hope for change. God is at work. 
He's weeding your heart. He's uprooting the idols and he's cultivating the fruit of his spirit. So there's hope. Of course, the question we have to ask is, how does God do this? God is good and righteous and holy. It is right for him to expel Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is his temple. It's where he exists. Beloved, this is what we celebrate every time we come to the table. God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know who the he is. It's Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that he might clothe all of those who look to him in faith covering our shame, not just with a skin of an animal like he did Adam and Eve that day, but covering us in his righteous robes. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by the Father, utterly and completely alienated from him so that we might call him our Father. On the cross, Jesus was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was laughed at and he was spat upon by his own people so that he might knit us together into a new community, a new people, a new family, a holy temple to the Lord, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. On the cross, Jesus experienced death so that the day might come when we will be raised from the dead and, our, and, and, and we will be reunited with our bodies. Our bodies will be made new and we will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no tears, where there will be no sorrows, where there will be no pain, where there will be no death. Beloved, this is the true story of the whole world. This is your story. This is my story. The world is not the way it is supposed to be. And you are not the way you were supposed to be. But the cross of Christ guarantees for all of those who look to him in faith that someday it will be the way it was meant to be. And we will be what we were created and redeemed to be. Would you pray with me? Father, your word to us is, is hard. We, we don't like to think about sin. We certainly don't like to think about our own sin. And yet, this is a diagnosis that comes with the hope of a cure. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he experienced what we deserve so that we might receive what he deserves. We pray, Lord, that you would show us the leaves that we use to try to cover ourselves. We, we pray that you would show us the trees that we try to hide behind to, to, to hide us from you. And we pray that you would convince us more and more 
that you know us as we are and that you still love us even as sinners. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. That Jesus, you absorbed the righteous wrath of God that we deserve so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for this hope. Bless us, change us, use us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.